The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. All right, we are going to start. Uh, we still have one, uh, one person to mic. Um, you know, and if you happen to be named Renee Duresta, um, you know, you're the one who can fix that. All right, um, so once upon a time, uh, there was a pandemic and we were all very sad. And um, I was sitting at home, it was like the third day of the pandemic. And I thought to myself, thinking, you know, we were going to have about two weeks of this. What am I going to need to get through this? And I thought uh, what I needed was to have uh, every day at five o'clock a, a glass of scotch with a friend and maybe live stream it, um, you know, have a conversation before a live audience. And I thought, that's a good idea. Who do I want to do that with? And I thought, ah, that sounds like a fun project to do with Kate Klonick. So I tweeted <laughs> at her about it. This was before my Twitter account got killed um, by Elon Musk. Um, and, um, and Kate uh, took a while to respond because she was like asking somebody the prom, you know, and then she takes a while to I respond. I think I was like fleeing New York um, City. <laughs> <laughs> and so then she said she would do it. And so we started doing that and we did it for 787 days in a row. Um, and as uh, John Sands put it, but it acquired a little bit of a cult following. Uh, one of our regular viewers described it as, as drinks with his imaginary friends, um, which is kind of the way we all think about, thought about it, I think. Um, and, you know, it became in lieu of fun. It had certain trademarks. One was that uh, we, uh, you know, had a completely unplanned, unscripted, and uh, uh, unchoreographed uh, um, conversation with some interesting person about something. Some once it involved a swarm of bees, for example, that just showed up live on, on the show. A lot, we blew up some computers. It was, it was good fun. Um, it also, it, it, yeah. What? It, it involved, yeah. and it involved scotch. It always involved scotch. And fortunately, Kate, Kate, good, good scotch. And fortunately, Kate uh, came through uh, uh, from Paris tonight to do this. Uh, and of course, that means uh, duty free. And uh, that means we are provisioned with scotch for the evening. Here, let me hold it so, up. Yeah, so, you know, very worried about um, this. And then the, the final thing was that, you know, we never really told the guests what we were going to talk about. Um, yes. And so we were. It's amazing how many people we got to talk to us on a live stream. Including, show. like, a lot of people <laughs> who are sitting anymore. here tonight. Yeah, a lot of them. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we had a lot of fun, and that was sort of the point. We always opened the show with the critical words, Kate. Uh, we're not allowed to have fun anymore, but, but in lieu of fun. And then we introduced Katie, our guests. Yeah, Katie so Harbath and Renee DeResta. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> so I want to start with a question to both of our guests. We're going to have an election this year. Wait, we have to introduce them. Oh, yeah, also, go ahead. This introduce happened a lot, yeah. which is we'd forget things. Um, so, um, so Renee is at the Stanford Internet Observatory, is an expert on mis and disinformation, um, and uh, specifically has a lot of history uh, with crazy people coming after her talking um, uh, about anti-vax stuff, which is how you got into this entire field yeah. um, and became one of the world's leading experts. And Katie has a very long uh, history of being at Meta and working on election integrity and policy work, and now you're at Duco? Yep. Doing consulting work, um, and we are. The theme was basically going to be today: mis and disinformation and election integrity, and kind of talking about everything that's been going on. So, 
Welcome. Thank you. So I want to start, and, and there are two, the, one of the important rules of In Lieu of Fun was the, the sort of audience uh, kind of participated as it saw fit in real time. It wasn't like a panel and then you, know, you would go to audience questions. And so there's two live mics there. And when you have something to say, you just go up and interrupt. And that's actually the way, because um, it's be like, kind. You know, I mean, don't be an <laughs> asshole about it or anything. But if you have something to say, just join. You know, there's two mics. And you know, if I have to call on you, then it gets all formal and shit. Um, so really cannot stress the improvisational nature. Of right. This. <laughs> it's a highly improvisational show. And, and as you see, it actually works better that way because most people are grown-ups most of the time. And when they're not, you can cut them off with a shocking lack of due process. Uh, so let's start with, um, with the fact that we have an election this year. And everybody seems to agree that to one degree or another, we're fucked. <laughs> and so let, let's maybe get us started. How we don't just have one election. We have a lot of elections. Yeah, how fucked are we? Happening. Um, so if you can't tell by my t-shirt, my mantra this year is to panic responsibly. <laughs> um, I have stickers. You can go to panicresponsibly.com if you'd like to remind all of your friends and family to. Um, I think that there, there's obviously a shit ton of challenges that we're going to be facing this year. So... Unprecedented year, first time ever that in the same year as the U.S. presidential election, all of you have probably heard me say this five bajillion times, but I'm going to say it one more time. Same time that you have elections in India, Indonesia, Ukraine, Taiwan, Mexico, United Kingdom, European Parliament. Just, it was going to stretch the most well-resourced of teams at any institution, let alone now that we're facing layoffs and everything else like that. Then you pour AI as an accelerant on top of it. Um, I call it kind of a kaleidoscope of different bits and pieces that we don't quite know how are all going to play off of one another. And it is enough to send anybody to be like, maybe I should buy a homestead somewhere and just be completely disconnected and go full prepper, right? But I do think that, like, frankly, this conference and others, like, there are a lot of people trying to do a lot of really great work to try to figure out how to do all this stuff in a way that continues to protect democracy and everything else like that. Because I do not want to give everyone anxiety-fueled dreams tonight because there's enough of that going on. Um, but there's no doubt that there's a, a ton of challenges, and we just don't know. Every day is going to bring something different to this entire conversation. So what, uh, I mean, obviously the thing that we're really afraid of is the, what Rumsfeld would call the unknown. Oh, unknowns. no, 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 yep. But what, from your point of view, what are the known unknowns? Like what, what, what are the ones that I mean, we just saw an example today, the audio deep fake of Joe Biden. The what, what, what? So you were on a plane, sorry. Oh, this so. is another important part of the show. <laughs> there which was is a news event that happens that Kate is unaware of. Because I, I have like a job and I'm like doing actual work, but I can't just read Twitter all day. <laughs> you were also on a plane while this okay. happened. So like you've got an extra. I'm always like clueless. Um, so there was a robocall going around New Hampshire of Joe Biden, AI generated of his voice, telling Democrats not to go vote in the New Hampshire primary. Oh, good. That's awesome. Yeah. How cool. good was it? What? How good was it? Was it like... I haven't listened to the actual audio. Did you? No, I haven't heard it yet either. It was a thing where I, I've actually... I was kind of surprised it didn't happen in 2022, but I think that one of the big shifts is like how democratized the stuff actually is now. And so ways in which, even though um, I think a lot of us who've looked at generative AI, you know, had like researcher access to um, GPT-3 and like 2020 and stuff, speculated that audio would be more impactful than video because there's fewer tells, right? So with video, there are a lot of these things where, you know, um, for example, respiration didn't match the, uh, the, the, like the, the physics of respiration didn't match the signatures in the video, right? Ways in which uh, your blood vessels dilate, for example, things like this, like aren't, you know, don't happen in an AI-generated video. And so there are these tells for video and there weren't tells for audio. Um, and then it didn't happen, and it was sort of an interesting thing, I think, that yeah, I think it was really like, it hadn't quite become mainstream accessible yet. So even though people knew that the technology existed, and you had started to see particularly people like Trump surrogates say, oh, remember the Pussygate tape? That wasn't really him, that was an AI-generated audio recording of him, sort of like trying to change history. Um, 
the actual audio deepfake did not actually manifest, which was kind of an interesting thing. And then now I think we've seen several in Slovakia mm -hmm. and then here in the US and uh, that is likely to have a lot more. So I wanna raise something that I think is, um, you know, to, to kind of de-escalate the AI panic, which is a little bit like, there are some very, there are some people who are very good at doing an impression of Joe Biden's voice. You don't need generative AI to do to do a robocall well, in New in Hampshire. Well, that's happened in the past. I think when no, it was George W. Bush, like somebody like Absolutely. did something that made it sound like him. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, and this is something that I raise with deep fakes all the time, which is that you that the concern with deep fakes, the concern with generative AI that is able to do this type of thing is like, I remember a lot of people being like, well, you can generate this entire like scenario that looks like there's a, a country has been bombed or that there's like some war going on or that something and then like accelerate this thing and it was like they made a movie about that it's called like wag the dog i think and there's like or like what was the other one that anyways that was you can you can get a like you can get a hollywood a hollywood set and make a, and like create a deep fake it's the about the accessibility the speed and like the ability like the, ch the chance to do this very easily with low access yep to this type of and stuff. push it more local. So in Baltimore, right. there's a really interesting story happening right now where there's this audio of the principal in the Baltimore school yes. that, that's going around that like, he's like, that's AI generated. And others are like, I don't know if that's AI generated or not. And now the school board's having to try to investigate to figure out like if he actually said it or not. And all right, so we're worried about, we, we know to be worried about AI generated audio Renee, what, what else do we know to be worried about? I'm just trying to identify the universe of things we expect. So I'll piggyback on, on what Kate said. So there is um, there's this concept where you both have the newly democratized capacity to produce faked content, which again, the faked content itself is not new, it's that, it's that democratization. Then you have, I would say there's kind of three intersecting things here. You have the generative AI technology. You have the awareness of generative AI technology, which intersects with trends towards a significant decline in trust and a significant increase in tribalism. Where if somebody tells you that the video, for example, um, it, or sort of the audio of the principle is true or not true, you can choose which reality you're going to believe depending on which you would like to be true, right? And so there's that, that question of do you trust the authenticator or not? Do you simply dismiss the fact check when it comes out? This is the thing that we've seen really kind of growing, this idea that the fact check is biased, the person is wrong, I don't trust that media, I don't trust this media. So you've got two different trends, the technological trend of AI, the social trends related to trust, and then I think the third piece, really the third really huge shift since 2020, is that social media platforms are decidedly different today. So you've had the great decentralization, right? You have people who are moving off of platforms, there's a proliferation of market entrants. The entrants themselves cater to particular political identities, again, kind of reinforcing that social trend. And so you, you started to see this kind of the first go round was the proliferation of right-wing coded platforms like Parler and Truth Social and Gab and the others. But now you see it on the left too, particularly as Elon Musk has acquired Twitter, laid off, fired significant percentages of the workforce, really changed the norms and, and kind of values associated with participation in the platform, what is amplified, what is de-amplified, <laughs> what, what, what $8 gets you, some might, might say. Um, and so that, that is, but, but this is the distribution piece, right? So you have the technological change, the trust yeah. dynamic, and then the distribution piece. And so you have to, I think, see these three things simultaneously as like the kind of intersecting forces as opposed to like a nice, easy, one word answer that I wish I could give you. And so this is kind of the interesting thing about the value of big tech platforms, speech platforms, that I think that people kind of slightly missed for the last eight years that they've been, there's kind of been this huge tech lash, which was that at least in like, a, I mean, cybersecurity people will tell you this, like this is like, at least when you have some type of like breach or something in privacy or something, if you have a few distributors, you can release a patch and then like solve this problem relatively easily. And it's the same with kind of problems of other types of things like election integrity. It's like, this is kind of one of the problems, that's exactly, I think it, Never mind kind of more amorphous problems like the fact that, you know, people were worried for so long about filter bubbles like on Facebook because of the algorithm only showing you things that you wanted to see, for example, or Twitter doing this. But like now people have decamped to actual bubbles. Yeah. Like they are not, they're not filter bubbles <laughs> yeah. anymore. They like are on Gab or Parler and they are not even 
accidentally encountering the truth, right? They're not accidentally bumping up against something that like they that they're going to like that's going to challenge their priors. And so I think that there is actually kind of in certain ways, just to amplify what you're saying, um, there's in certain ways this is like actually in some ways the market has corrected and it's, like it's nice to have this choice and this is something that Mike Masnick and I, like I've always been kind of on Mike Masnick's team about this, which is like the protocols, not platforms. But I have seen this kind of pushback on this idea in like the last, like, oh well, this is actually maybe having some downstream consequences that I did not anticipate the fact that you can have all of these different platforms, well, it's also a little harder to have the top-down control in an emergency or in a moment of like in a, in a moment of great importance, like elections. All right. So I want to remind people that if there are things that you're, if there are known uh, unknowns that you're concerned about, please just grab a mic and tell us about them. Um, I, I want to ask whether this. Uh, the environment that you're describing where everything is in fact radically more distributed uh, and we're in actual bubbles, not filter bubbles, does that make uh, uh, disinformation more or less difficult to spread? I mean, it used to be that if you were the, uh, if you were the internet research agency, you know, you, you did some bad stuff on Twitter, you did some bad stuff on Facebook, now, for even just, you can't even say Facebook anymore. You have to say meta. And it's no, Facebook still exists. It's the blue app. <laughs> right, but it's, there's three It's an app amongst the meta family. You've got Facebook, Instagram, uh, WhatsApp, Reddit, but you got, you got like, Oculus. Are you, are you using Facebook or are you using Instagram or threads? I mean, it's, it's, it's getting complicated for, I mean, even if you're not dead, like Evgeny Prigozhin. Um, you know, it's that's a significant <laughs> shift, right? There was an aviation accident in Russia. I mean, runs the show. Who knows? We'll I mean, I, I, I gotta say, for a disinformation propagator, it looks like a, what you're describing looks like a more complicated environment. I actually than think it's it easier for him. I think it's a little bit easier. To All right, really. so make the case. I, this is surprising. My argument for it is that what Russia did was never aimed at what we might have called the unified American public, and that's because there is no such thing as the unified American public. And so if you are targeting a faction, and your factions have conveniently just physically moved themselves to different platforms, then your right-wing trolls are going to be on right-wing platforms, which is, by the way, exactly what we see, right? There is a, um, this is like so extremely niche, but um, there's a phrase called regulatory arbitrage, right, where there's, uh, for the lawyers in the room, um, where there's basically, you have made it a palatable place to exist. This is where you should do business. The moderation laws favor you in this particular case. And so what we would see is even as Meta or Facebook or whatever we're calling it, or you know, even back in the golden era of Twitter actually moderating things, what you would see was like they would move to platforms where they were not going to be moderated because they could still reach the target and they could still be effective there. And so even in the 2022 midterms, one of the things that we observed from Russia, Iran, and China was actually the prevalence of these really like targeting down-ballot races, down-ballot narratives, and what you might call almost like the down-ballot social media communities, right, where they're on like Gab and Reddit and these like much more niche places because what they want to do is either nudge somebody towards a particular action by being a member of that community, speaking as a member of that community. They don't care about unified American public opinion. They care about that particular niche. And when the niches declare themselves quite visibly, you've actually in some ways made the targeting easier. Well, and then I also look at in terms of Trump's own use of now of social media. And he's still posting mostly on True Social. Like, I would have thought he was going to start posting on Twitter right away. Yeah. And I still think there will be an epic uh, Trump-Elon fight at some point in time because they just both need the attention at, like, whenever it happens. But I was thinking about this of, like, there's no, other than doing advertising, there's no incentive for Trump to go beyond True Social because he doesn't want to get kicked off him so he can keep doing advertising. He can post on True Social and everyone spreads it anyways. Yeah on all the other platforms. And so then the question is, if you're a platform, like, are you gonna shut down anybody that shares a Trump Truth Social post? Like, it actually makes the content moderation, in my mind, a lot more complicated than it does when it was just Trump posting himself. I think one of the big, sorry, we'll go to Laura one second, but I just wanna say that the really, one of the biggest questions that I have is like, that I feel like I've never gotten a great answer on is the, the problem of 
something appearing initially on one platform and then being cross-posted. Yep. I think that that's actually really, really difficult. And it's also a fascinating kind of question of coordination between platforms and coordination between jawboning and governments. Because as you kind of, as you're, as you're talking about this, there's like pressure to like take something down on one platform and then do you have to enforce or do you create a better environment for advertising purposes or for distinction purposes or for, you know, for any regulatory purposes at your own platform because you want to distinguish yourself? Right? If like Facebook has decided to take it down, Twitter would decide to keep it up or that type of, you know. As, you know well, or you have conflicting ideologies of what you should right. do with it. Right, right. Sorry. Hi, Laura. Laura. Laura Edelson as I live and breathe. Hey, folks. Hi. Lovely to see you all. Um, you know, so Ben, you were asking about known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And I feel like there's actually you know, I have an unknown unknown that I'm quite worried about this election season that is because of the growth of the availability of, of generative AI tools. You know, one of the things that these tools were initially, um, you know, advertised as being great at, and they are great at, is style transfer. And in the disinformation realm, this is mass personalization of content. And the reason, like the specific reason that I'm quite worried about this, and I'm trying to think through methods um, for this is that, I mean, I know enough about the way platform content moderation works to know that one of the reasons this poses a risk that cheap fakes do not is with cheap fakes, you get one. Yeah. With mass personalization via generative AI tools, so you can get hundreds. And just practically speaking, this poses a real problem for content moderation on platforms. All right, so, so, so flesh that out for us, for those, who haven't, uh, those of us, including me, who haven't thought through this. What does this look like in the context of an election? Just sketch out a scenario. Sure, so let's say you have some new conspiracy theory, and that conspiracy theory is centered around um, an audio clip. And that audio clip is known to be a fake. And it has Donald Trump or Joe Biden taking a bribe or committing a crime or you know, whatever else an electorate would consider disqualifying. So the way this works is that platforms would identify the piece of content. They'd identify, in this case, an audio clip or a text or whatever it was. They would identify that and they would even if there were many, many copies of it, they would be able to identify that piece of content and block that content. But now if you don't have one single piece of content, if you have hundreds of, of pieces of content that have the same idea in them, but have been mass personalized to different communities, to different audiences, then you have a much more difficult, just technical moderation problem to solve. It's the Christchurch call problem times 100. Of two. It's the what problem? The Christchurch video. Oh, the Christchurch video problem. Yeah, so you're familiar with, like, but just the Christchurch video problem was that when the mosque uh, shooting happened in Christchurch, there was uh, an effort, uh, I actually wrote about this for The New Yorker, was about how the, was basically about how the Facebook um, escalations team chased this video, like for, tw for 48 hours around the world, basically switching it from team to t escalation team to escalation team to escalation team, trying to hash this image and perpetrators basically finding ways to fuck with the hash. And so, not being able to take it down and it resurfacing and resurfacing and resurfacing. This was the, the, the Christchurch um, mosque shooting video. Um, so that was, um, so that's like a version of what you're saying basically is like, is differences with hashing or is it also just in like how it's personalized and wrapped it's not around a, both it? Yeah, it's not even a difference in hashing. Um, this is, you know, this is really easy to, to see in text. Let's say you had a, um, some kind of conspiracy theory instead of having one text that gets copy-pasted to many different communities, you have many, many different texts that contain the same core idea, yeah. but don't have the same consistent textual markers that content moderation teams can use to sort of mask. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about the early, the early fact-checking days and false news days, um, and I definitely want to get to you all, but let me just make my point really quick, is, um, a lot of the a lot of the links that people were initially like clicking on and stuff was like Tom Cruise killed in your hometown and stuff like that because people would click on that 
Because they're like, wait a second, like, A, a celebrity was in my hometown, and A, they got killed there? Like, <laughs> that, like I'm going to click on that. So, like, as you were talking Maybe, about like, this, I'm finally, like, all I kept thinking about was, like, um, how you could go from community to community, and you could very well target it to, like, the swing states and stuff like that. So, like, I'm from Wisconsin, so you do something very close to, like, what happened at Lambeau Field. Something happened at Lambeau Field. In another state, it's, like, what happened at that sports stadium or something like that. To your point, it has the same core concept, but it's very personalized to that city and state. And then from a content moderation standpoint, it's very hard to detect because it's hard to train them, the classifiers to find all that. So, sorry. I very much followed what she said. Yoel. <laughs> no, no, you don't have a mic. Woo! Mic, no. Hi, is this on? Yeah, oh, there great. it is. Great. I used to run the censorship team at Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, folks. Uh, no, also, so, are you the devil incarnate, or what? What was the moniker? Uh, the most evil person on the there planet. There we go. I believe was. Uh, yeah. Just want to make sure Which, you get like, your due. Uh, Considering he spent the day at Auschwitz today, I, I feel like that's sort of an he interesting He did? Wait, story. what? Who did? That too? Yeah. I don't Kate, know you're anything. on a plane today, so <laughs> you, you missed that. Um, right. So that wasn't, the, that wasn't what I was going to talk about. Um, so, so, Wait, did so, Trump or did Elon? Elon? Oh, God. Let the record show that it was not me that said Elon. <laughs> he, he killed my Twitter account. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you said that originally, I was like, God, did I ban Ben Wittes? No. And then I had to think about it a little bit no, more. No, you didn't. I'm pretty sure I didn't. Um, no, so, so I, this picks up exactly on what you were saying, Kate, about like the difficulty of chasing the Christchurch video around the world. Like, yeah, I was working at Twitter when we had to deal with that. It's hard, and, and more than that, it's expensive. And so let's go back to the, the great decentralization. Some of the work I've been doing over the last year has been looking at the trust and safety capabilities of federated and decentralized platforms like Mastodon and Blue Sky and Threads. And it, it turns out that like they're pretty fucked, right? Like they have not yeah. done any of the development work that all of the centralized platforms have spent the last 15 years You have a great doing. piece on this at night. Institute that you published, right? I, I have yes, many with our benefactors here at okay. night. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 no, like I'd love to hear you tease that out a little bit. Like, what is it that we yeah. should be looking towards in terms of this great decentralization? Like, we all love to complain about Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and their centralized corporate censorship power and whatever. But and the most evil man yeah. on running all the planet. And the great evil that I have exerted over free speech. But, like, <laughs> but what have we lost? Right? What well, is it that we don't have going into the elections? So, year? Renee, you are the, the queen of censorship herself. Um, <laughs> I, and I didn't know that we had to be so much leader. I mean, there, there's, there's nobody who knows more about the censorship industrial complex <laughs> than the totally woman with the glass of scotch it's sitting in front of me. a pigment of, uh, you know, some substack or imaginations. But, um, um, yeah, so... Well, the, thing, the word that came to mind, actually, is, is both of you... Um, Kate and you all were talking, is demand, right? So if you think about disinformation as a supply side problem, then you can think about it in terms of like putting up friction or barriers through a certain series of roadblocks on certain centralized places. And when that no longer exists, then what I think, and this is maybe not a popular opinion, then you find yourself confronting the demand problem, which is why is this resonant? Why will it work? And what do you do about that? And the, we, we've done some work on moderation in the Fediverse also, not on the disinformation front at all, actually, on the really most basic shit, which is CSAM, which is literally illegal yeah. content, right? And, and the realization that they, there is just not a mechanism because you have extremely well-meaning people who are running you know, these federated servers because they want to create free speech environments for their community. They want to set their own rules for their community, which I think is fantastic, actually. That is the one thing, the kind of devolution, you know, Mike's written about this, Mike Masnick over there has written about this too. This is the protocols, not platforms thing, but this idea that you have that devolution down to community moderation, where you can create your own norms and you don't, you know, people like Yoel can't silence you. Um, but the, <laughs> or Mike's like, get my name out of your people mouth. People like Renee can't cancel me. But, the, um, but this is the, the challenge, though. I think the thing that we confront then is actually the demand question, which is uh, you both have a technological challenge, which is that the, you know, the, uh, we had a, a conference at Stanford called Beyond Moderation. Um, 
where I argued that moderation suffers from a crisis of legitimacy and continues to treat this as a supply problem because reckoning with the demand actually is a lot harder. And that's where, unfortunately, you have the agency of the user, whereas it might be easier to think about the moderation policy at the end state, which is where the platform figures in. You can't do it with the user. That, that's, that's the issue, right? I <laughs> so want to push you on this because okay. I think this is uh, like a key to the thing. All right, so when the queen of, of censorship <laughs> and the most evil man in, in the world were, were running the censorship industrial complex. Twitter was a super safe place for somebody like me because you know I am solidly within the mainstream of what people, what people like you guys tolerate. Says the man uh, wearing the dog shirt. Says the guy the dog shirt. <laughs> dog shirts don't offend Twitter's you know, trust and safety team, right? You know, turns out neither does projections on Russian embassies or, you know, you know so that, that stuff doesn't bother the, 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 the censorship people. Um, but then, you know, you guys went and lost control of the world and the place fractures um, and all of a sudden I spend, I, you know, get myself banned from Twitter, I spend way less time dealing with social media at all. And so, at least in my case, and I, a lot of people I know, just the demand actually recedes as a result of the lack of places that you would actually want to spend time. You're talking and, about the demand for social media. I'm talking about the appeal of particular narratives. Oh, so when I'm talking okay. about demand, I'm not saying like the demand for the use of Twitter. I'm saying if we're thinking about um, the creation of norms and community moderation policy, the assumption is that everybody largely adheres to the same societal norms related to mm -hmm. speech, and that's not actually true. And so what you find yourself confronting, the reason the decentralization happens, is because there are people on Blue Sky who want to see particular types of content and have particular types of moderation. Same thing with threads, right? Which, which you know, it's sort of early launch marketing argument was, we're like Twitter again, but with sane moderation. I think sane moderation was like verbatim, actually, what the executive said about it, right? And then you have, um, you know, Gab and the others, where they're arguing like, we will not moderate you. This is in fact the same thing Telegram says. Not only will we not moderate you, we don't give a shit if a channel is run by Russian intelligence or not. That is Info totally, stuff. yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is, and so, so what you see is like the creation of communities oriented around norms and the demand for those norms to be the things driving the content moderation policy. And that's what I see as, as having fractured. Mm -hmm. can, can I bring you guys back to your topic? What is our topic? How dare you? You're <laughs> <laughs> Scott. I thought we were on topic. I thought, I, thought we were, I thought we were on a great path talking about demand side, but I want to talk about elections and demand mm. side. Oh, yeah. The oh, yeah, we're talking about, about elections. elections. <laughs> yeah, remember that? You know, so imagine a world There where you go, forcing us to talk about the subject. Oh, you, guys, <laughs> you, guys, you guys are so brilliant, so I know you yeah, know the answer. Yeah? Imagine an election that is very close, down to the wire. Yeah. And imagine that there always are these people in the end who are undecided. Yeah. And let's just say, you can come up with more categories <laughs> You, I'm from Wisconsin. What do you all? Mine, mine's I'm, still mostly full. I'm glad somebody's actually <laughs> drinking it. Um, imagine know that me. The, Come on. the these undecideds at least break down into two categories. One is really undecided, and I always vote, and I just don't know who to vote for. And then there's the people who maybe often don't vote. So let's dig into this demand side. Instead of worrying about what the platforms do, big or small. If you're trying to get those final people, the 10,000 people in five target states, can you make them, can you put out something that is so awful or so distorted or so whatever to get them to vote for the candidate you want to in that last week? Can Isn't, you, so should can I, or like, can you? Like, or should you, or? Well, no, 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 forget the should. People are going to do People this. are going to do People this. People are I, going to do this. And, and it's, it's all about, and I want to really focus on the demand. It's like, we know the supply side problem, and we know how difficult it is to moderate and all of that. But what do, you, what do you anticipate, because we're talking about unknowns, right? But what do you anticipate are the kinds of things 
that are distorted but will actually get people who maybe wouldn't have voted to vote for the candidate that these distorters want them to vote for. Oh, you're going at this from a couple different angles. Sorry, because I originally was going to... So listen, I'm a Republican with a pharmaceutical level disclaimer underneath it of what type of Republican I am these days. Because <laughs> I have to explain like away a lot of different things of like where I fit. And I frankly have voted Democrat the last eight years. So I don't quite know where I fit. Um, and when you were talking about that, like I think about, I had the rare opportunity to tell a particular candidate why I did not vote for him. Um, and it, it came down to, I was like, I, I wasn't sure. It was like, it was a governor's race in Virginia, so y'all can do the math of who this was. <laughs> and I was a fellow at Georgetown in 2022, and he was a fellow too. So if you want to do the math, you can do the math. And we had this conversation, and I was like, I was like, it was literally your debate performance. I sat there and watched the debate with my absentee ballot in front of me, and the other guy eked you out. And then he was like, but what about this? What about this? What about this? And I was like, Governor, he goes, he goes I, I ran all these ads. And I'm like, Governor, I don't remember ever seeing an ad from you. Hmm. And he goes, and then he was like, wait, are you a cord cutter? Yeah, I'm a cord cutter. I've been, I haven't had cable for 10 years. And he's like, I go, what did you do on digital? I'm like, I'm a single woman in her early 40s in Northern Virginia. Like, I'm the swing voter of swing voters of like, and he wasn't, he was like, I don't know. And I had never seen an ad from him and he didn't know, he had never even reached out to somebody like me, like not that I could recall as part of all of it. So when you were originally asking your question, I was like, oh my God, this is like my experience where I'm like, it's not even just like what points of miss or disinformation it's also where are the campaigns legitimately spending their money to try to find the pockets of people who are swing voters who don't want to vote for a Trump and don't want to vote for maybe a Trumpian Republican, but I will vote for a Glenn Youngkin over some, like, it's just a really weird experience as a voter right now because I really don't feel like anyone's speaking to me. And we talk so much about the mis and disinfo, and I agree that could be a component to it, especially if you're like a low news. But it really, for me, like it's so shocking as somebody who, for me, who's so politically involved, that it can be one thing at a debate that can make me be like, no, I'm going to vote, I'm going to vote this way versus that way. And so then you think about how the mis and disinfo for others can like tilt that scale in one way or the other, and why I think, to make my last final point, we, you need to start sooner rather, like, it's already too late for 2024, but there's still a lot of time, so like, but there's inoculation period that needs to happen with like talking to people about the types of narratives they might see. The thing I was gonna add, Jean, to your question is like, I wanna kind of loop this back to something that we said earlier about the elections and that Renee was touching on, which is the idea that like, you have this ability for, um, for the disinfo people, for the misinfo people to target their specific pockets of, of people easier. Like the, both Katie and Renee said that mm -hmm. this was going to be easier. So that's like the disinfo campaigns, right? And Katie's kind of talking about like the failure of campaigns to counter that or to to make their point. And so you just it's like it, I, I think I don't know we could sit here and like kind of like fantasize about crazy tall tales about um, who could ever imagine that there would be a pedophile ring run out of like the like the ping pong pizza comet. place comet yeah whatever. Yeah. Um, but my point is is that and that Yoel did it you know the, by the way. <laughs> so, that was him. Um, <laughs> surely there is some AI scraping my voice on the internet right now and it has this on record. <laughs> We're going to have to do a lot of like I know, but the, But seriously, that there was kind of, I think that the, to bring it kind of back to, to your point, I think that one of the things that I've always been a huge proponent of, but I don't know how you make actionable with Laura's point about how you, how this is, it the mis and disinfo ends up getting wrapped in like by text or changed or morphed by rhetoric, especially in text or kind of audio format, is like I was going to say that you have a two week break 
uh, on on political political speech, however you define it, or campaign specific speech, or something like that. That's right. That's what France does. Yes. Uh, yes, it is what France 48 does. Forty-eight hours or something. There's like a there is a, there's a break, but it there's France is a three-month break. Oh, is that how long it is? Okay. It's a huge blackout period in France. They're the longest of anybody. Most people are 72 to like 48 hours. Thinking. But okay. you do that and it's hard to enforce and it's hard to do across things. And I think to Laura's point, like it's really going to become increasingly hard to enforce because you're able to find your pockets and you're able to find that one particular voter, to your point, Jean, like that is, that wouldn't go out in the rain to vote, but will go out because they found out that Joe Biden kills kittens and now they are going to go vote because they have 10 cats and like haven't left their home in 15 years and like, I don't know, and like they're, they're gonna do something like that. Like I think that that's right. I feel like All right. somebody in this room could probably, can I make one point? Yeah. Somebody in this room probably knows the answer, like a you know, social science researcher, but most of what I've seen has not been efforts to persuade, but rather to demotivate, Yeah. right? And that's, and that's the thing that I think is, um, there's this idea that if somebody says something on social media, you're, you know, through this hypodermic model going to magically convert people to hold particular new ideas, and that's not the case. But if you do something that creates doubt or do something that demotivates them from turning out, like, that actually seems to be, and funny enough, that was the strategy Russia ran also. They were not sitting there trying to convert people to vote for Hillary Clinton. They were trying to demotivate, sorry, to vote for Trump. They were trying to demotivate people from voting for Clinton, mm, right? right? And so there's very, like this, this dynamic of like what is happening is not so much persuasion as like a, eh, do you really wanna go out and do this? Is this really worth it? Do you like this person that much? No, they kind of suck. And so that I think is, um, there's, there's like different yeah. things that work for different people. Um, whereas we've also seen things like in Slovakia, this AI generated content that implied that one can, you, did you remember the specifics of this that had like um, basically generated audio that implied that one candidate had done a thing. Um, the, the question was like, did that demotivate his supporters from turning out because of the doubt? Wait, all right. Just one quick follow up and maybe one of you all know this, but like empirically, which is the bigger threat? Like disinfo that motivates positive, you know, voter behavior or Campaigns that generate, you know, sort of manufacture the kind of apathy that prevents that that, that prevents people that from essentially up. disenfranchises. And we've got a lot of political scientists in the room who can probably speak. Yeah, to if this, there's a political scientist which is, in the room which, who wants to answer that, I'd be. I think that they should like a, come. Josh Tucker, I see you. Yeah, I was just going to say Josh Tucker. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, where's Josh Tucker but, when you need him? But, Josh, what I will say as a person who is not a social science researcher, you know, in, in, the, in the style that, that Josh is, what I look at is like, what did they actually do? Meaning, what does the disinformation actor do? And so, based on that, can but, we infer that they think that, that is the opposite? strategy and almost a hundred percent of the time it is the dissuasion and the and yeah. so the other thing I'm worried about for this this year in particular is that we're gonna have a hard time separating out because people are burnt off from news we see it all in the polls and everything they're not in the US they're not particularly excited about Trump versus Biden if anything's going to cause them to turn out, it's going to be down ballot races. It might be abortion. It might be other things like that. Or, or but, negative polarization. Yes. This hatred of the other side. The hatred of the other side. But also, even that we're not seeing to be as, as powerful as it was in 2020 for Biden. Event, at least at the moment, that could change. But like, let's assume, I, I mean, I don't want this to happen, but I think it will. Tomorrow, the primary election's wrapped up. We have a really long general election. Yeah. I don't know what's going to fill that vacuum during that period of time and what that's going to, what that's going to look like. And I, I just don't want us to think about that ever, to think that the decisions people make are going to be purely about mis or dis whatever information they're presented. I also think there's a lot about just people are freaking exhausted since COVID, it's the four year anniversary of it all, and they're not that excited about the candidates, and so they're just checking out. It has been all right. dark 10 so, years of politics. I wanna, <laughs> we have two people in the queue here, uh, Rose and Laura, but I want also to zoom way out and just say, we've had two big baskets of anxieties here that we've surfaced, one is, all the bad things you can do, particularly in audio with generative AI, and the other is the fracturing of the space uh, and the ability to sort of micro-target your, um, uh, your 
you know, platform by platform, your disinformation or uh, demotivational action, uh, you know, to blue sky for libs or for gab for conservatives, whatever. Um, I would be interested in hearing from anybody in the room in any big third basket of, of like, what the hell are we uh, afraid of? What are our anxieties? So you want to add more anxiety onto everyone? Yeah, I want. I, I, I don't <laughs> think we have enough anxiety. Ben is like, so, well, uh, <laughs> so if you have, I feel like a lot of people are heading to mics now. Um, so, what are y'all Rose, Laura, and then new anxieties. Bring it on. I'll, I'll tie new anxieties into mine. How's that? Yeah. Uh, no, it, was, it feels like we're talking a lot about, no pun intended, the generative side of generative AI. Um, generating anxiety. Generating anxiety. We can add more generations in. Um, I am curious, though, when you flip it to uh, how we're receiving that or experiencing it. I, like, so the two part, I can blend it in. One is crisis of belief in anything, to me, is the biggest fear, which is not something you're targeting on a specific you know, type of generative AI or disinformation vector so much as whether or not anyone ever believes anything that's in front of them from anyone and what that does to a democratic society in election or otherwise. So I take that and I flip the frame because I worry that we chase every possible application of generative AI, um, which is an unending black hole of despair and anxiety. Uh, and so instead, I'm curious as you start thinking about it, what are the areas of institutions and societies and binds of trust that you would want to make sure in a world in which everything is up for debate, you have more tools to give people some belief in them, whether those are election officials or voting process itself or community members, what is it that we can do in an age of generative AI? to create those opportunities, even if we're talking technical, like watermarking and provenance, not on the AI content, but the credible content, or you're talking about the institutions that need to be ready for certain kinds of communication and you don't think are. We've talked about local versus mm -hmm. national. I'm just curious how you were thinking about that angle uh, as we walk into the anxiety-producing space that people will now give us more anxiety about. Yeah, give us a reason for why we need to still believe in the concept of truth, Renee. <laughs> <laughs> I, in all seriousness, I feel like um, I feel like that is the central problem, right? And and I don't have an answer for it, and that's because I think we are, as a field, I would argue, very, very, very good at understanding like where narratives come from, why they work, why they're impactful, who they target, who they work on. Like, there's such an incredible body of work on that. But the question of counter speech, the question of response, one thing that I consistently see that makes me absolutely mad, and I wrote this in like 30 different ways during COVID, was that institutional counter speech was not networked. And so you have an entire network of people who are profiting, either financially or in terms of clout, from spreading bullshit and they know exactly how to amplify, how to move the message along, how to spread it, how to make it reach people. And then the counter speech is a fact check and a PDF on a website. And I look at this and I think like, my God, we've, we've like foundationally failed to drag institutions into the modern communication era, hmm. but who is actually responsible for that? And that's the part that I don't have an answer to. Right, because it's it, like guerrilla warfare versus like the red. Yes, it's, yeah. yes. <laughs> like, it's like, to put an American spin on it. Yeah. All right, Laura. We'll solve that problem. <laughs> um, so the conversation y'all were having about five minutes ago around the um, about how sometimes a more efficient strategy is to demotivate voting reminded me of some of the uh, and your question around like what is the other thing that we're not talking about that we should be worried about reminded me of some of uh, Bruce Schneier's really excellent work around um, yeah. the, uh, you know, about how in democracies, elections are these key points of vulnerability yeah. in time. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about how platforms have uh, really de-resourced the teams that, that fight this work. And what that means in practice is you know, right now we are not in one of those threat vulnerabilities in time, unless you're like in New Hampshire. Yeah. And, uh, but we will be 
that week, that very bad week is coming, and it is coming this year. And we are going into the, to that week without the resources we had in 2020. And I'm starting to think with like fewer resources maybe than we had in like 2016, please maybe not that. And I'm just, I'm- X, Put X in its own category. Yes, that's far less resources. Other platforms, it's not as dire. Twitter. Oh, sorry, X, go. <laughs> I don't know what to, but I don't know what name to call it. But like, let me, let me tell you, Facebook's a hell of a lot more people than we had in 2016. Except, except for the decentralization that has taken place, and as UL has very well documented, it is massively under-resourced. So I'm, yeah. I'm just curious, you know, when we, we, we don't know what that bad week is gonna be, but we all know it's coming. And so what, are, what kind of resources are we going into that week with? If I, if I can, to me, the question is not about resources, though that is very important. The question to me is, are the leadership at these companies that have to make the decisions about whatever happens during that week? Because if it's, if it's a week like January 6th, that's not, that's going up to the C-level suite for decision making. And one of the biggest challenges and frustrations I have is that I don't think those folks go through enough of the threat ideation exercises being like, you're gonna have to make these really tough decisions, um, whether, like, whether to platform a candidate or whatever it might be. And so that actually adds time to it because, because they haven't gone, not gone through the exercise, you then have to go through it in real time and that's just like a totally different thing. So I know it's only one component of what, of what you're saying, but that's, that's what worries me more is like a lot of leadership being like, we don't wanna have to deal with this and then they're all of a sudden confronted with it. And that's a big challenge. All right, we are gonna wrap in five minutes because uh, we're actually gonna end on time so you guys can go to bed. Um, but I invited. Go to drink. I, I, oh, sorry. So go that to you guys can go drink. Um, <laughs> uh, but I invited people to raise new anxieties that we haven't covered in our past uh, expression of anxiety. We have three oh, we have people who have three people <laughs> have lined up to express anxieties. We're going to hear from all three of them, and then uh, we're going to ask our, our guests to wrap up. So, anxiety producers. <laughs> uh, so, Courtney, Center for Journalism Liberty. I think a few of the anxieties I'm concerned about are, we haven't talked at all about mainstream media and how they play a role in this, right? The, the information ecosystem is broader than just uh, social media platforms. What is going to happen when you have an entire, an entire ecosystem created of information that seems to purport that something happened or didn't happen? Um, that gets the media to cover that or to investigate it. That you know, it's we already know that there. It's very easy and already lots of fake news, fake news organization websites, under-resourced journalism outlets, actual journalism outlets, inefficient fact checks, as you mentioned. So what happens when you get you know the dossier plus the video that purports to show the documentation plus all of this, right? And then you get all of that crap targeting lawmakers who then launch investigations into the same crap as we've seen, you know, with what Renee, you know, is dealing with and, and, and other researchers, right? So you're going to see, I think, the mainstream media getting held hostage to this. You're going to see lawmakers who are going to have their uh, attention diverted and, and manipulated by this as well to launch fake investigate, you know, to launch investigations into this, you know, fake information what happens when you get revelations coming out at the last minute. So, you know, if we pull back from the social media platforms and think about the broader information ecosystem and how these all interact, um, to me that seems like almost a bigger problem than like, is this one fake video gonna be debunked? Yeah, that's all a great right. point. I also just want to say that like the, the resources, like you kind of touched on this, but like the resources that it diverts from mainstream media, like they're not covering in the time, like they're not covering other things because they're getting sucked into this ecosystem of debunking bullshit all the time. And so like that is sucking up all the airspace and other types of things, other types of investigations, other types of real news that is happening or not, or it's all being sucked into a performative. Yes, exactly. So. 
Emily Tavlarius, Georgetown Tech and Society. Um, my anxiety is non-Roman alphabet languages. Oh, yeah. God damn it. Yeah. No, I'm like so, so stressed out about that. languages. Like, I know it's so true. Just, I think about this all the time. Do you have a yeah, particular character set that bothers you? Yeah. No. <laughs> what is your particular character set? Cyrillic, <laughs> you know. Not even gonna get specific, literally just non Roman yeah. alphabet. It just, I'm hearing everything you all are saying, it resonates so deeply, and then I think, even for a split second, about like, God, who is looking at X, Y, or Z languages? I am Greek. Anytime I get on Greek Twitter, or X, or whatever, I'm like, horrified, because the top few things are all like, very clearly Russian propaganda. Um, and, you know, I don't really know what to do with that. I think so. I'm going to. I'm not even in a. I'm not even in a not a different alphabet country right now. I've been living in France for the last four four months. Florence can speak to this like more than I can. I wonder what your experience is because Florence is from France and has been in the U.S. We flipped at the exact opposite moment. But there is this incredible, incredible sense that I've had, and I want to write about more prolifically about how different the internet is in France than it is, which you would not expect, than it is in the US. Like the interstitials I see on everything is are so much more. Like I literally looked up Michelangelo the other day. It was just like interstitials. Like it was just like, it was, um, it was incredible. And I, I think about that all the time. And if you think about where the money is, which is basically like, I, these numbers are old, but I think it was like meta, the average rate per user, for North America is around like three to four dollars per person. Um, and the next greatest market is the EU and it's like 140, like $1.40 per user. And so who are you going to cater your, and like then rest of world is down at like 40 cents a person, right? Like if it's that. And so there is no, it's, I mean, this all came out with the Myanmar and everything mm -hmm. else. Like, this is all kind of related, but you don't get the amount of the, you don't get the amount of moderation. You do not get this type of um, care in places where it's just not worth it for the dollars. There's also a really unique. So we realized this for India. I think for the 2019 elections, um, people who Hindi is their prominent language will still have Facebook set as English, like their prominent language yes. is English. So we couldn't, we decided that we had to do uh, all of our notifications in English and Hindi because if we just did it based upon their chosen language, they actually wouldn't understand it. Which is how Wiki, Wiki does a lot. I mean, so anyways, whatever, we can get into the, the nitty gritties of this for yeah. forever, but Dave Wilner has a great question and I, I can't love wait Dave for this. Hi, Dave. <laughs> Hi, hello, Dave Wilner, uh, Stanford Cyber Policy Center and formerly head of trust and safety at OpenAI. Um, we, to sort of bring it full circle, you, we haven't touched yet on the direct targeting of election administration officials. There's been yeah. a lot of reporting about that. I think particularly with the ease at, uh, with which you can clone audio, you only yeah. need 30 seconds of somebody's voice. Any single one of you could easily be cloned just based on this podcast. The In fact, this podcast is... Right, that's what it's for. <laughs> I'm, a, right. I'm a hologram, um, actually. <laughs> like, if, if I were going to try to fuck up the election, I would target specific administration yep. officials in the small yeah. number of states that actually matter with... Uh, instructions from their bosses in their boss's voice on the day of the election. Yeah. Uh, Not to give anyone on the internet idea. Yeah, don't, uh, <laughs> don't, if, if you're a bad person, I was I was that. going to start running through um, ideas when Gene asked this question, and I was like, that's a terrible Yeah, so that's a whole <laughs> other box, basket of anxiety. So look, I, I, I think we have exhausted an hour. We've identified at least four or five big baskets of uh, reason to be concerned. Um, and reasons to drink more. And reasons to drink more <laughs> of the scotch that, you know, here for anybody who wants it. So look, the traditional way we end uh, in lieu of fun episodes, and this went on literally for years, is that I would tee up something. Oh, no, I um, and, um, and then I would say, and, and, you know, we always say, and then Kate, no matter how many times we did this, would then get sort of tongue-tied and be unable to say something in the following format, which is we're not allowed to have fun anymore, 
but we are allowed to have um, and then something witty about our guests or about the subject. And so now um, I'm going to do that. And it's not really fair because Kate <laughs> just got off of an airplane. On the other hand, uh, I did just do this whole speech to wind up to give her time to think of something. <laughs> and so she really should be prepared. So uh, we're going to leave it there, guys, um, because it's you know 10 o'clock and we've had a whole hour. But, Kate. We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to still have a little bit of fun with Scotch in Miami and all of you. And also, I'm sorry, Ben. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I am literally a goldfish in a bowl, just swimming around, forgetting where I was 40 seconds earlier, like all of us. And so I'm going to go hang out by the pool. It's awesome. So thanks to Renee. Thanks, Katie. Thanks to Kate for coming all the way from Paris to do this. Uh, and thanks to John for inviting us. Uh, and uh, great to see you all. Yes.